we come back together this morning, we continue our sermon series uh, on relationships, and it, it's been a little theoretical, I suppose. We, we had to start with uh, the Trinity, uh, God's interaction uh, within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, uh, thank you for bearing with me as we try and build that foundation to understand that our very nature uh, is built to engage with one another, to reflect the image of God as we communicate with one another, as we have the intimate relationships and friendships that are described within the body of Christ. And even on uh, wider circles of our relationships, those concentric circles of relationships that we'll talk about over the next few weeks, uh, they find their structure, they find their significance, they find the way that they will function best as we understand the interrelationship between uh, the Trinity. And then last week we started to talk about how God engages with humanity as the prime mover, as the one who created us for relationship with Him. He comes to us in generosity and love, correction to be sure, but also patience and instruction and mercy. So we walked through how God initiates and models relationship for us as he engages with Adam and Eve both before and after the fall. And this morning we're going to talk about broadly, uh, hopefully a little bit more practically, uh, human relationships to one another, the basic ideas of human relating to one another and what that is called to look like as we reflect the Trinity and, of course, the challenges that we face as we have rejected that in our sin and struggle then to know how we interact with one another as people. I'm going to read the Jeremiah passage first, uh, and then later on in the sermon, uh, have your finger uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll, we'll refer to that in the second point of the sermon. But let's put God's Word in front of us uh, as we open our time together. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 9. Again, the context here is that God's people have been taken from the Holy Land, from the Promised Land, because of their own shenanigans, which is a delicate way of putting 400 years of rejecting God's wisdom. Uh, and they are now in a foreign land. Uh, they are uh, really pretty close to being enslaved yet again. And God sends His prophet to encourage them in the midst of this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they are dreaming. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we ask again for your mercy, for your encouragement, and for your strength through your word. Your word made flesh, but also, Lord, your word as it is embodied here in this text. We pray that we might hear again the calling of our Savior in what it is to be your people in and through what can often be a very challenging world. We pray, Lord, that we might, by your Spirit, be refreshed again in the joy and possibilities of human relationships, of what it is to live in community. We pray this morning that anything that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, that those words would quickly be forgotten. Amen. So there's many ways to start a sermon like this uh, relating to human uh, interaction. Uh, What we can say broadly is that it's usually around power. Uh, It's usually about my ability to have power over you or your ability to have power over me. And we have this sense in which uh, we take Jeremiah's word or the Lord's word through Jeremiah, work on behalf of the city because by it it'll be good for you and good for them as sort of a pragmatic sense that this is really just about our own flourishing and comfort. And that as long as we are okay, we hope that it will be so for others. But I would encourage you this morning that God's direction is more positive. God's direction is more in the affirmative. God expects His people to be the ones engaged in and creating a context in any culture, for the kingdom and for the very nature of relationships which God himself manifests. And so we'll look this morning, first of all, that relationships between humans, much like the relationship with the Trinity, within the Trinity, is built on mutual service. Service is a defining reality of human interaction. We serve one another. We were never designed to be independent. It is not good for man to be alone, and therefore, it's hard to imagine. In fact, it's impossible to really construct a human relationship in which mutual service is not a fundamental aspect of our engagement. And then secondly, this morning, we're going to look at the commitment in love. And that'll be our 1 Corinthians passage, is that there is service and that there is commitment. And on those two foundations, human relationships have the opportunity to grow and flourish. Whether they are as intimate as marriage or as broad as being citizens of the same city or county or state or nation. So first, Jeremiah 29, 4-9, service the service of God's people in and through the world. And you go, okay, this is uh, not, of course, a new idea. Jeremiah is not telling God's people something radically different than what they already knew. What he is doing is turning a tragedy and retelling a story through the lens of the hope of what it is to be God's people. Uh, Imagine, it's not imagine, uh, wrong word. Reflect with me back to Exodus chapter 1. We find the people of God where? In a foreign land. Egypt and Babylon are often uh, images of places being out of the promised land that are used by the Old Testament authors to describe exile. 
right? And so uh, Egypt and Babylon are, are sometimes uh, interchangeable. And if we go to the children of Israel in Egypt, what do we find? That they are enslaved. And when they are enslaved, in verse one, uh, 7 of chapter 1, uh, Pharaoh has them do what? Build storehouses and cities for him. Build houses. They're forced to as slaves to build for the Egyptians. And here, this side of what God has already done in his covenant work with his people, already having a season in the promised land, already doing what he's done through the temple, God describes the exiles going into Babylon as having the opportunity not simply to be slaves, but to still be servants of the land in which they live. Build homes, build businesses, build families, build into the nation that just ran roughshod through your cities. You see, there's a choice here in the service of humanity. It looks like weakness. It looks like copping out. Daniel's a sellout. He shouldn't have uh, been so effective in helping administer two great empires in his ability administratively and gifting. And yet he did, and it's not a sellout because he was always working for the king. And there's no sellout in God's people now in Babylon being encouraged and said, look, you don't have to act like slaves, but you will be servants. Only God can take a power, a position of weakness and turn it into an affirmative power for the good of the kingdom to lay the groundwork for the next generations that will, in fact, be encouraged and blessed to go back to the promised land. Not because they were sticks in the mud, pouting for 70 years, but because God encouraged them to be salt and light in the midst of their time of exile. And so they are to build cities, not as slaves, but as servants, redeeming the story of the children of Israel in Egypt. He encourages them to increase. Now we know that there was a blessing in Egypt that God increased the children of Israel. In fact, that was the initial threat to the Egyptians. But after having gone through what the children of Israel have gone through, what they've gone through in the division of their kingdom between north and south, the breaking up of families, the utter despair and the seeing the dream of Israel fall, The hopelessness. We hear it even today when people say, because of global warming, because of anger and fear and 15 other things, can we really bring children into this world? Imagine just having had your entire world destroyed and you had a forced march into a place you don't know. What, how excited would you be to have kids in Babylon? Temptation is still the same, to look around at the world which seems to speak about death, to speak about futility, to speak about why on earth is God waiting so long, can't we just punch our ticket and get out? And God says, look, my plans are my own. In the meantime, Genesis chapter 1 said, be fruitful and multiply. I gave you that ability even in the oppression of Egypt, and as you had into Babylon, nothing has changed. No that a good God can and will give life to your children and use them mightily for his kingdom as he delights to do. 
This is not me telling you how many children you should have. My point is that when we struggle with the difficulties we see around us in the world and the temptation to say, my stars, how will that impact my children? According to God, that is a call for us to do things like build homes and cities and businesses and work for the welfare, work towards the kingdom ethics in the place that God places us. But do not decrease. Do not decrease. I will bless you. And I will bless you and your children. Notice in our passage that it's not just one generation, but that those children too will be given husbands and wives and to encourage multi-generational expectations of God's goodness even in Babylon. In Egypt, they were enslaved. Their working for the welfare of Egypt was done at the end of a whip or the promise of a gruesome public death lest one step out of line. But again, as we've already alluded to in the sermon, God says here, work, seek the welfare. Seek the welfare of your conquerors. And in so doing, you conquer them. We are more than conquerors. The world doesn't understand that the human interaction, when we serve as God calls us to serve, when we understand the foundation of what it is to be His people, even in seasons where the rest of the world sees our God and us defeated, is still a position of infinite power to transform the world in the foolishness of the cross, in the foolishness of mutual submission, in the foolishness of service to those who do not like us or those who might wish us ill. Seek the welfare of the city. That's a position of power. Can you imagine, again, psychologically, the notion of God coming to us? Yes, it may be a challenge, but God is telling me I have power. I thought I was a defeated, humiliated, rejected by God person. And God is saying, no, there were consequences to Israel's sin. That is true. You find yourself in Babylon, but I am your God and I will never leave you or forsake you. You have power no matter where you are. And if you act in line with who you were created to be, one who serves like me, if you serve one another and serve your community, amazing things can and will happen. You are never defeated when you are part of the community of God's people, wherever they may be found. We have unbelievable power to shape and change a culture. Last sort of comparison between the story in Exodus and the story we find here in Jeremiah is that God's people are praying for deliverance. He hears their prayers as they pray for deliverance in Egypt. And God is so affirmative in his sending of his people into Babylon that he tells them to pray for the city, to pray for those who conquered them. I am with you. I am actually, through Ezekiel and other places, going to talk about how I'm going to fill you with my spirit, how I'm going to give you a new heart. I am not leaving you or forsaking you. Therefore, you have the position 
Not to wonder if I will save you, but since you are my people, you can pray for the welfare of those around you. It's a retelling of the story of God's people in Egypt through the power and the promise of a Messiah. We are now after the Davidic covenant. We are now after God's promises. So much more has been told of the promise of the kingdom and its power that even as God's people go into Babylon, the difference between when they were enslaved in Egypt and the power they now have in the promise of a Messiah radically changes another season of exile from the promised land. Restoring the hope of Genesis, right? Because again, I haven't said enough about Genesis 1, 2, or 3 in this sermon. Uh, So again, plant gardens. We could take that as just simply, well, you have to have food on the table. But is there any throwaway language in Scripture for God to speak about abundance and to speak about the work of planting a garden and to nurture it? And to use your craft and your trade. Bring Eden to where you are. Bring Eden to the people of Babylon. Again, we are encouraged that in Christ, even more so than we could possibly imagine, as he sends his disciples out at the end of Matthew, as he refers again and again to the reality that to be first, you're going to have to be last, that to serve the other is the mark of what it is to embody true humanity. Animals do not serve one another unless there is a purpose. I pick the lice off of you so that you pick the lice off of me, and we figure out what our pecking order is based on who picks lice first or last. It's functional, it's contractual, it's tempting to read humanity into it. And of course, in the common grace, of course, how many ways are animals going to interact? They're going, some of them walk together in herds. Some of them will walk more alone. Yes, of course. But there is no model for human culture found in nature. Because in the end, it is simply about power and survival. But to be human, to be human is to know that we are eternal, that we have a nephesh, a living spirit within us, and therefore all of the time frames are changed. And service becomes something we can do for the other, not primarily for what it will do for us as individuals or as a church, but because it is the very nature in which humanity was created to serve the other, just as the Trinity serves one another. Even in times where we feel we have no power, God reminds us of a power that the world cannot understand. The direct connection to the Trinity, the love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So it's not simply service, of course, but it is the commitment of love. And here, again, there are a few passages better 
than jumping to First uh, Corinthians. Uh, all of 12 is encouraging. I encourage you to read it uh, this week. But I wanted to focus just briefly on 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13, a famous passage, uh, and one hopefully you know well. For just as, Paul says, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There is fundamentally here an understanding of the mutual commitment to one another. The body is fairly committed to its other parts. It needs them. Uh, It suffers when they get cut off or fail or are ill. To be a part of a body is to be committed. Committed covenantally, committed by vows. It is why uh, marriage is described as the becoming of one flesh for this reason. Why? Uh, Because this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You are me. We are made of the same. That is the bond. It's why we talk about the Trinity as being of three persons but one substance as we try and get our minds around what it is to share essence, what it is to share a commonality of existence and being. And God gives that same pleasure. It is so important that in Genesis chapter 2, He simply doesn't create Adam out of one mound of dust and Eve out of a second mound of dust. And the only thing they have in common perhaps is the dirt. It's not the dirt that they have in common. It is their flesh. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There is a common essence in being. In the material as well as the spiritual reality of what it is to be one body. And of course, one spirit, Paul reminds. And so as Paul is here trying to encourage the Corinthian church, which is having great difficulties being one body, economics, Sin, different faith backgrounds, all coming together into one community of faith is creating some odd and uh, unfortunate disruptions in the unity of that body. And as tempting as it is, and quite frankly, let's face it, it would be easier and more functional if we just had a Greek church and a Jewish church and a slave church. And if we kept them separate, they all have their own cultures. They all know how to talk to each other. Wouldn't those churches be more harmonious? Shouldn't we keep the Jews and the Greeks and the slaves separate? Because chances are that'll be a more peaceable church. The temptation has always been there. We wouldn't have Paul's writings if it was easy to do the body. Many of you have heard this. It's one of my new mantras. The whole point of Paul's letters is to say two things. Because of who you are in Christ, therefore you can be one body. You can be human. All of the ravages that we read through through Genesis on through the Pentateuch into the Old Testament, all of the tragedies of the inability of human beings to be committed to one another, to serve one another, to care for one another, through differences and difficulties, 
northern and southern kingdom, why do they split? Tax law. Human misunderstandings. Human frailty. Human greed. The belief that you are there to serve me as opposed to what the Trinity tells us, which is we are here to serve one another and therefore I can be committed to you. So we are of one body. Again, Paul here is not talking about a philosophical sense of the, uni- of the invisible church. It's not that he isn't thinking about that at all, but I think as of late we have too much leaned on a spiritualized notion of the body of Christ freeing us from the entanglements of a commitment to a local body. The challenges of stability of membership. And again, I'm speaking here broadly. There's no condemnation. Uh, My point is simply to diagnose the challenges we face in the American church. We're just simply not as committed to one another in the body. Differences in musical styles, differences in liturgy, differences in missions budget, differences in fill in the blank make it harder and harder for us to commit to one another Not because we're getting something from the church, but because we know we're called to serve the other. One body, because we share one spirit. And it's hard, and we're not supposed to miss the the reality that drinking of one spirit is literally a few verses after his clarification of the importance of the sacrament. And how the disunity around the Lord's Supper was creating great turmoil and even something like death for those taking the Lord's Supper because there was no unity and commitment within the body. Paul is reinforcing that by reminding us that it is that one spirit we drink, the living water that comes from Christ. There is real joy in the struggle to know someone else and to be known. When we look at the challenges our culture faces that invade the church as well, isolation, the fear of being alone, the reality of being alone, the fear of being known. The Bible reinforces that as we serve one another, we create a structure that allows people to trust that they are not here to be evaluated, but be transformed. The commitment allows this to be more than an abstract idea. How can we really trust one another to know our deepest needs and our brokenness if we're not sure whether or not they'll be in the pews next Sunday? for any myriad of reasons that don't rise to the level of E.C. Bell as a complete heretic and the session won't shut him up, which would be a good reason to leave. You know what I mean. We all wrestle with what it means to stay committed to a body of Christ. And I'm not saying, of course, that that doesn't mean folks move congregations. But could we wonder whether or not it's become too easy 
to normal, that the bar has been set rather low for us. We're not as committed to one another as might be useful if we're going to be able to serve one another. And all of that sounds really negative, and I was trying to make this a positive sermon. But it's just better, right? Marriages are better when we don't wonder whether the person that we're married to is keeping score and looking to leave if we don't measure up. Children know the love of their parents is not based on how well they do in any myriad of talents or skills that the parents encourage, but that they're loved unconditionally by their parents. Doesn't that create a freer, richer life for a child? Isn't it more enjoyable in those friendships you have that you know that are mutual and appreciated and safe, where you can actually agree to disagree and have wonderful disagreements that are quite vigorous, and yet you know that even Even if you're angry at one another for a season, that friend will not leave you. Isn't that a more joyous place to live? Don't we have a sense of freedom in those lives? Isn't what God is pointing us towards, of that mutual submission and care for one another, service and commitment, a peaceable place to live? Not a burden, but a joy. Something that is pleasant when we find it and a delight and encouraging. John 13, 34. It's hard to preach this sermon and not talk about that. They will know who I am as you love one another. Important enough where Jesus says it in 13 and in 15. But I wanted to read because I'm in Paul. Uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21, just as we close and reflect, this is the amazing passage where Paul is talking uh, about living sacrifices and what it is, interestingly enough, sacramental language, sacrificial language to describe how it is we interact with God and with one another, those whose lives are defined as service. Now again, quick caveat, the reason we erase all the names every year is because whatever that service means, it doesn't mean grinding people out in the day-to-day business of the church. This should be so much grander and more beautiful, not that we don't need hospitality on occasion. But please, when you hear me read this, don't think that I am trying to populate that sign-up sheet. We have something grander envisioned, something richer and deeper of what it means to serve one another and see the kingdom go forward. And so again, Romans 12, 9 through uh, 21, end the sermon much better than I could. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. What a lovely place to live. It's not utopian. It happens in Babylon. It happens in places of great difficulty where the world can't imagine that happening. And it transforms the places where it emerges. Salt and light. The pleasantness, isn't it good?
when brothers dwell together in love. It is the richest experience. The calling of humanity is to dwell in the richness of relationship, the richness of fellowship, the pleasure that God had in correcting the only thing that he said was not good, which is that it's not good for a person to be alone. So he created other humans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we ask for the patience, the fruit of the Spirit, that we might delight in what it is to be created in your image, to have those relationships with one another. We pray for their richness and their depth. We pray for the delight and joy. Lord, we know at times it will always be difficult. It's no no surprise that you even allow us to see behind the curtain in the garden that the son asked if there is any other way. And yet, Lord, we know that in the midst of the freedom of that relationship, there was a love and the service. We pray, Lord, that we might care for one another as you have cared for us. In Christ's name, amen.